house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will tell Julia Roberts to her face that that beret is not working. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we're going to be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had big time Academy Award aspirations, and for one reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. Or the botany, if you will. (laughs) God, true. We're going to have to change all of our metaphors from animal to vegetable for this one. So uh, we're going to be talking about the 2017 asterisk movie, uh, Tulip Fever. But first, I am your host, senior writer at Decider.com, Joe Reed. I am here with my co-host, entertainment writer, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Finally, this the the adventure, uh, a decade or more in the making. We are going to talk about the failed Oscar campaign of... Tulip fever. I feel like maybe what we should have done to our listeners, as much as this is like the very like epitome of a this had Oscar buzz movie, I feel like we should have just dragged this out for the listeners for forever and like tag <laughs> every episode with. And yeah. this week we're going to be talking about tulip fever, and then what a good bit that could have been. We could have been defined by that bit. That's too bad, man. Lost opportunities, much like the lost opportunity that was. The film Tulip Fever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you said it right there. Like, if if the concept of this had Oscar buzz could have been made flesh and filmed over the course of 2014 and not released for several years and then finally limped into theaters, it would be Tulip Fever. It is sort of everything we talk about, about the kind of idea that seems Oscar-y, and yet no one... I, we say that Tulip Fever had Oscar buzz. Do you feel like, I think to start off, let's start off this way. Did Tulip Fever ever have Oscar buzz? And if it did, when? Yes, it definitely did because uh, we're talking about a Weinstein Company movie. Every year they would go to Cannes. They would show these big reels to rooms full of press of everything that they had in their coming lineup. And pretty much a lot of those movies that they would be showing to the audience every year at this event would be what they were presenting their Oscar players to be. It was shortly after filming was happening. It was still supposed to be released later that year. Um, But obviously it did not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it had the November release date. It had that kind of, we're going to talk about this in a second, but just sort of the based on a sort of Tony work of literature and made by these people with Oscar pedigree and by this studio who always seems to be going for Oscar. and First presented to at least the press yes. in a way that 
with yes, that at the Fancy Pants Cannes Film Festival. Yes, absolutely. So definitely, it had Oscar ambitions, and you know, it was almost designed to show up in, you know, later this year. Here are the Oscar contenders, and yet. I've been thinking this thing about costume dramas for a while in that we always put them on these lists of contenders because costume dramas for a while did sort of dominate the Oscars, particularly I'm thinking like the 1980s in the sort of out of Africa, a passage to India, a room with a view, Howard's End sort of merchant ivory and merchant ivory adjacent era you know, Tom Jones, Barry Lyndon, these kind of things. Um, We were sort of trained to feel like, oh, it's a costume drama. Oh, it's based on this, like, much beloved work of literature. Then, you know, definitely that's what Oscar voters go for. And A, I'm not sure that they do anymore. And B, I'm not sure they have for a little bit. Like, am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. Uh, As far as why we still think of costume dramas in that way is because if you're people like the two of us are, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, when you're thinking about far in advance, what could actually be a player, you feel like their costume dramas can be at least a safe estimation for at least two nominations for costume design and art direction. Right. That even if it's the Duchess it could still have a chance to go home a winner on Oscar night because the costumes are so lavish and the, the sets are so, you know, wonderful. And, and so and of a period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, it's like, that doesn't exist. They had to make that. And also I feel like the, the kind of movie that has replaced costume dramas in terms of what Oscar voters go for is a lot less easy less easy jesus christ it's a lot harder to see coming down the pike than costume dramas are you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to 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 predict it by genre or by even the talent involved when you know movies like moonlight and spotlight are winning oscars it's harder or even something like the shape of water where like you know, as I said, when when that one, like, oh, yeah, who who how could Guillermo del Toro have missed coming off of Crimson Peak? Like we all knew, you know, this was coming. No, we didn't know this no. was coming. Um, so with the Oscar game sort of harder to predict, at the very least, these costume dramas, you're just like, well, we know what we're getting here. We know this is a known quantity a little bit. And with Tulip Fever. So here's my theory about Tulip Fever. Who do you think is the most important and telling credit on this movie? Uh, it's wild because the movie itself is all over the place and has this huge ensemble. Uh, are you saying who's the most authorial voice for this movie? I feel, I'm, what I'm saying is who, what person is the most is the person on this movie who you're like, oh, well, now I know what this movie wants to be. My theory is that it's Tom Stoppard. I would probably say director Justin Chadwick or the author of the original book who shares a screenplay credit with Tom Stoppard, but I don't think Tom Stoppard is a bad idea, and I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that. <laughs> My feeling is once Harvey Weinstein hires Tom Stoppard to write what I believe was the final version of the screenplay, although not the only one, um 
I think that's that sort of tells you the kind of path that Harvey Weinstein wanted to take. And by the way, we should probably mention up front all all possible caveats with Harvey Weinstein. We're, when you have a podcast called This Had Oscar Buzz, you're going to be talking about the Weinstein company and Miramax and Harvey Weinstein a lot. You're also going to be talking about people like Kevin Spacey a lot and like a whole bunch of like people who are now you know, well-known to be these unsavory characters. Especially when we will be talking about the past in every episode. You know, there's going to be people that we're going to talk about in movies we're going to want to hash out for people who unfortunately might still have their own, you know, horrible actions yeah. brought to light. So it's going to be somewhat unavoidable and uncomfortable, but we're here more to talk about the movies. <laughs> And rather than just every single time Harvey Weinstein's name come up that we both sort of like go Ugh, and like spit on the carpet, like just imagine that we're doing so like let's just a blanket like Ugh, that guy. Um, he's disgusting. Kevin Spacey's disgusting. We all get it. Now we can discuss history as history happened anyway. And when we're discussing them on this podcast, I doubt it will ever be in a positive light. I was going to say that's the other thing like. This is this is a podcast about sort of hubris and failure, and that kind of goes part and parcel with uh, with a lot of this. So, um, but I think when Harvey Weinstein hires a guy like Tom Stoppard, Tom Stoppard, who you know, in addition to being this phenomenal, you know, acclaimed playwright in his own right, wrote the co-wrote the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love. That was that remains. I feel like the biggest. Miramax Harvey Weinstein Oscar success story for as much as he won with other things I feel like Shakespeare in Love is the if especially if like he's writing his own hero's journey in his head like that's the one the blueprint. yeah exactly and so I think with something like Tulip Fever again this is a costume drama this is um I mean Shakespeare in Love is not like based on a work of literature but it's like it's there's you know a literary element to it and and the, I think you can see that the pitch would probably be Shakespeare in Love as erotic drama or erotic thriller right and I think the thing with Stoppard is if you watch the movie because like I also don't think Tulip Fever is a terrible movie I think it's in many ways a misbegotten one it's in many other ways it's just kind of a dull one but it's not this like epic disaster or anything like that. What it is, is in certain ways, it's a strange little movie. And I will say, I saw of an earlier version of this movie that before it was, you know, one of the many times it was recut. I was going to ask and about that. It was a stranger movie. It's tough for me to remember because it was like, it was legitimately early 2015. Um, that is precisely not the word I was expecting you to say because it's already pretty strange as at least as far as the plot mechanics of this work yes the amount of characters the amount of somewhat inconsequential characters but i think it was it was strange in a way that felt sort of authorial and sort of felt like stoppard was putting his stamp on it a little bit and i think that was the one thing that the movie had going for it um i think in no version of this movie was it ever really a great movie but um I think in its most ideal state, you look at this sort of odd little footnote of we should probably give a quick, you know, summation of the plot, which is <laughs> Dane DeHaan plays an artist, a sort of starving artist who gets commissioned to paint a portrait of what is Christoph Waltz in this movie? An Earl, uh, uh, 
Count uh, something, some sort Christoph of. Christoph Waltz only plays Earls and Counts. It it, it doesn't matter Thank what you. he is. Thank you. Um, so he's a rich, you know, important man with a young sort of trophy wife. And Dane DeHaan is, com- is commissioned to paint his portrait. So it's Christoph Waltz and his young trophy wife is played by Alicia Vikander. And <laughs> through some fairly obvious plot machinations, um, Vikander's character and Dean DeHaan's character sort of tumble into bed with one another. It feels like, does it feel to you like the artist, the sort of portrait artist in 17th, 18th century movies like this is to rich husbands what the the nanny is to new like new mothers in thrillers god which is the watch your back profession du jour which like if you if you invite a a portrait artist into your home (laughs) and you are a wealthy man with a younger wife like you done fucked up bro and i think it's the same thing it just reminded me of like the hand that rocks the cradle i wanted to be like julianne moore to walk in and just like have a little sit down with christoph waltz and being like you do not invite this man into your home i don't care how squirrely looking he is like well I, right? I guess, like, in the hot young thing version of portrait artists, it's Dane DeHaan would be cast perfectly then, because, like, he's... Uh, Dane DeHaan is an avatar for a hairless baby panda. He <laughs> is always 18. He will forever be 18. He... Like, you just understand how this is supposed to be the person that woos Alicia Vikander, who is supposed to be 17 years old in this movie. I I get that's historical, but it's super gross. Yeah. Uh, Of course, Dane DeHaan. He's supposed to be older than her, which is very funny because, yeah, he always looks. Dane DeHaan will never not be 18 years old. We love Dane. Um, I actually do. He's so maligned, I feel like, these days, but I really do like him as an actor. We'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, But he's perfectly anti-Christoph Waltz in that way and the perfect, like, portraiture artist. He even has portraiture artist wig at the, like, finale of the movie or the epilogue of the movie. It's like a very... It's true. It's like an Amy Brenneman wig that they put on Dane DeHaan. Oh, man. Just the cliche of that, like, to the extent that who's, like, the cliche nanny that steals your husband away? Is it, like, uh, 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 Christi- uh, like Christine Hendricks or something. Christine. Oh, Christina Hendricks is a good one. Or like classic, like Alicia Silverstone, 1990s. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, don't let Scarlett Johansson into your house. Are you kidding me? She yeah. is not going to take care of your kids. And <laughs> not ever finish that painting. He starts like 17 different paintings. Um, I love that. Like she's giving you every little signal. If you are like a detective or whatever, and you're like, Hmm, I wonder if my wife is cheating on me with the portrait artist where she's like, I don't want that portrait artist around anymore. I want you to fire him. Does he look like that peach fuzz mustachio Dane DeHaan? Yeah. And she's just like, I, I, I feel like it's against my religion. And also we can't afford it. And also, and also, and he's like, you want to pick a reason? And she's like, I just don't like him. And then cut to next scene where she's like, got her engine revved up by this guy. So then she's like really riding the hell out of Christoph Waltz. And she, in the middle of like climaxing, she's like, is I, like changed my mind. I changed my mind. I want you to hire him again. And it's like, honey, you are not making it subtle at all. This is 
quite obvious. This is maybe a good on. time to bring up that they shifted gears last minute for this movie, as listeners may recall, to be to start this campaign for it's the sexiest thriller of the year. Oh, that was the ad Out campaign, of, right? Like three minutes of the movie where there's no, actual boot. No, it's going not. On. Yeah. So, uh, and all the while all of this is going on, which again, I feel like is a fairly amateurish sort of uh, infidelity in the 1600s drama. While this is all going on, the interesting thing that is happening, or at least like the historically curious thing, is that I'm, I'm assuming this is Holland. Yes. It's Dutch. Or is this. I thought it was the Netherlands. Is that, is that yeah. It's Tulips, yeah. right? Everybody's in their English accents because it's a costume drama, but like, you know, we know how this goes. Yes. So uh, while this is going on in Holland, this like very real tulip boom is happening where like people are like day traders for tulips. It's It's like a stock market for flowers. So that's the thing is this is uh, it's what was that um, shit? What was that movie with Zachary Quinto and uh, Margin Call? Margin call. So it's margin call with tulips, essentially. And there's this fucking bizarre cast of characters where it's like Matthew Morrison, Zach Galifianakis, Cara Delevingne, um, Kevin McKidd. Like, all these people are sort of caught up in Holiday this Granger. tulip yeah. yeah, and they're caught up in Zach, uh, or uh, Jack, what is his name? O'Connell. Yeah, Jack, Jack O'Connell. O'Connell. Jack, O'Connell. Jack O'Connell. God bless him. And his angel face. Um all caught up in this tulip trade that I love too, that like who is growing these tulips that are like causing the entire economy of Holland to like boom. It's the Abbess Judy yeah. Dench back in her little like her fish nun farm or whatever. Uh, which again, and like she's another one where it's just sort of like, Oh right. Like this is again, it's the Shakespeare in love DNA that we're trying for. But so I feel like Judy Dench is, it's the only cast member of this movie that makes any sense. If you look at it through a 2017 lens, when this movie was actually released, if you look at it in the 2014, when they actually shot it, it's like, Oh, these are the like bright young things that we're going to take a gamble For on. Sure. So you watch it For now sure. and it's this weird, bizarre time machine where Matthew Morrison can put on a mustache and be in two scenes. And it's bizarre. It's super bizarre. Tom Hollander's in this movie. Um, the the boss from the first season of Homeland is in this movie. It's wild. So anyway, I feel like this is the kind of stuff that Tom Stoppard was like, okay, like we've got this sort of like romantic storyline and it's kind of whatever. But the Shakespeare of it, you know what I mean? The sort of like our hook is going to be this bizarre sort of like tulip boom that was going on at the time, except the two storylines never really marry together. The first storyline gets complicated by the sort of like house wench played by Holiday Granger, who is carrying on an affair with the fishmonger played by Jack O'Connell. And they're kind of the hotter couple, right? They're the ones with like, I don't think Vikander and and Dahan have bad chemistry. There's a couple sex scenes that like, I kind of wanted to get in on that, but like, it's like O'Connell and Holiday Granger sort of have the real love story of this right. movie. Like I spent a good half of this movie trying to figure out which was the A plot line and the B plot line. Like yeah. Alicia Vikander's on the poster, so she's the A plot line, right? But Holiday Granger's the narrator of the movie. So mm-hmm. it, if any of this sounds crazy to the listeners, they should know that we've spent 
this huge chunk of time on this plot for this movie because the plot is crazy. It makes no sense. And it's sort of like that there's sort of a threes company esque angle where like holiday Granger gets pregnant and Alicia Vikander is supposed to be pregnant. So she's passing off that she's the pregnant one. And like, holding the door a quarter of the way open as she's like going into labor pains so that like Christoph Waltz can't see that it's really holiday Granger. Who's going into labor pains. It's really amateurish. But this is the type of thing that should be happening at the end of the movie, the climax. And this is the middle of the movie. Yeah. Here's the other thing, Chris, I want to ask you serious question. Do you think Holiday Granger is mad that in the space from making this movie to releasing this movie that Florence Pugh took her slot in in Hollywood? I think even Holiday Granger forgot she made this movie. <laughs> it's true. I feel like I mean, Jack O'Connell is another one who's sort of like, I sort of get defensive of because like I think there's a lot of people who have only seen him make flops where it was this, it was the Angelina Jolie movie that was another big Oscar contender that went nowhere, and it was Money Monster. And I'm like, yeah, but go see Starter, or Start uh, not Starter for 10, Startup, which he's so fucking good in. And he's like, great in um, 71 as Yes, well. he's also, yeah, go see those two movies. Don't see don't see Tulip Fever, don't see uh, Un- Unbroken. 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 I almost said unbreakable. Um, Okay, so I think Jack O'Connell remembers he did this movie. Who in this ensemble completely forgot they were in this movie? Tom Hollander has no idea he was in this movie. Tom Hollander has no idea he was in this movie. How long into making Valerian did Cara Delevingne and Dane DeHaan look at each other and like, wait a second, we were both in that tulip. We were on that set that day. Remember? Remember when you tried to sell your tulips and everyone was quiet and I kept staring into the middle distance for whatever reason? Like, Like, it was supposed to be important, but nothing happened. Remember that? And Dane's like, oh yeah. Yeah. Um... Justice for Valerian. I really like that movie. Anyway, we have spoken too much about this insane plot because really it's inconsequential, but mostly I feel like I think Tom Stoppard might have been able or might have had visions of making this sort of like odd little that at least it would have given a costume drama, something of a hook, something of a strangeness, something of, Oh, we can compare that tulip boom to like, modern day financial markets and isn't that weird um and it just never happened right so i feel like also it would have been somewhat closer to because this is a literary book too and it's justin chadwick who also directed the other Lane girl which i feel like this is more failed oscar buzz also more failed oscar buzz that starred everybody everybody and everybody who went on to like become a thing was in that movie and this is like the B-level version of even that movie. Yeah, yeah. At least that one was trashy. Yeah. This movie isn't really trashy. Like, Christoph Waltz isn't even that bad of a guy. He ends up, like, wandering these fields in the West Indies, like, raising a little, like, Haitian family or something. Yeah. I don't know. He's like... just I- I- icky, and he, like, talks to his penis, and... <laughs> yes and he wears those big sort of like accordion collars that everybody wore back then that looked fucking ridiculous on the christoph waltz scale of bad guys creeps and he's supposed to be a hero in django unchained he Ugh, is this is yeah. this is closer to the django unchained maybe right. it's no water for elephants 
No. It's no big eyes where he's like this despicable person. But yet yeah. he's always playing a version of the same guy, right? He's won two Oscars yes. for giving one performance his entire career. Kind of, right? Why? Like I'm I I know that's that's sort of the fashionable thing to say these days, but like I really we all sort of loved that Inglorious Bastards performance, but it was one of those things where it's like, wow, if we could have played this backwards, we maybe would have only given him one. Yeah. Yeah. Um Alicia Vikander, let's talk about Alicia Vikander, because the timing of this in her career is really interesting. Because if this would have come out when it was supposed to come out in 2015, in November of 2015, it would have just gotten swept up in her Oscar year, and it might be remembered better as sort of like the supplemental material to her winning for the Danish girl that like 2015 was her year. Cause she had ex machina and she had the Danish girl. And then that tulip movie that nobody saw, but you know, she wasn't bad. Right. Just she's to bolster it. it in a competitive year. It would have made her yeah, probably a little bit more clear. Feeling. It wouldn't have been her Norbit. No, <laughs> um, but she's perfectly fine. Like she comes out of the movie unscathed, even if it's exactly a performance you've already seen from her. Yeah. But now I think it comes out at the wrong time for her. Well, certainly in 2017, because it's just sort of like, it's such an afterthought and it's almost like a, it's like a stillborn baby and you don't really know what to do with it. But the more I read about the development of tulip fever, where, and again, you know, Weinstein caveats, but like, it really does seem like she was positioned. She was very much like for, I, for whatever reason, I sort of saw her as this sort of actress who came out of what is it? A Royal affair. Yes. And kind of like wowed people in that. And then sort of made her move to America and you know, it all sort of happened, but it feels like there was a lot more packaging with her than I kind of thought. And it makes me wonder about her as an actress and sort of like her career going forward. Cause I don't think she's entire, she's like terribly versatile. No, though. I mean, I think she's best when she gets just a little weird or has to do something a little tricky or someone who has a point of view on what her natural abilities are like ex machina. I kind of like her. Yes. And in ex, ex machina, definitely. I kind of like her in the light between oceans. Yes. Where she has to play somebody who is selfish and sort of fighting for her own self-interest. I actually I I don't like that. that movie. Talk about it. I think Oscar back on movie. it fondly. I think that's another one of those movies, though, that like it doesn't really have a whole lot to hang your hat on because it's not a whole lot different than things that we've seen before. And unless you're sort of doing something that kind of speaks to not necessarily current events, but you know, like at least the King's speech is an interesting movie to talk about when we talk about like, do character, do costume dramas matter anymore? Because it's not really a costume drama. It's a world war two era movie. And those movies like still work, but it's not like you watch the King's speech and you go, Oh my God, that so reminds me of like things that are going on yeah. right now, but it's, it sort of bottles this kind of inspirational public figure narrative that we still really respond to. And, and there's little inklings to that movie too, that people can extrapolate and make bigger stories out of such as like yeah. childhood abuse. Whereas like romance and especially like, romantic drama 
from the 17th century, like it doesn't really teach us anything about anything. It doesn't like we don't get anything new from it. But for us to get really excited about that kind of movie, it has to really work and really register. And we have to be able to get swept away with it. And I don't think there's anybody that did with this movie. Right. Well, that's the thing. Like it has to be, you have to be excellent at something. So it has to be either like wildly sexy or give you this like total revelation of a new talent, or it has to be like really unexpectedly funny. I think that, I think the path to success for tulip fever is if it tried to be contemporary funny like try to really like be wild and crazy and just sort of like and be almost a satire or at least like i don't know like a lot more out there like you would need a different director you would almost need a god i don't even know to like really like make this thing almost like edgy or almost like I'm thinking of like, so what Sophia Coppola did for Marie Antoinette, not the same thing, but a similar sort of irreverence towards like the, the put together costume drama-ness of it. For this movie. I, I mean, it's interesting you bring up Sophia Coppola because I would think almost even more the beguiled because I, I realize this comes from a female author and she has a hand in the screenplay as well, but a female voice mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily register here. And I think that's maybe no. something that would have made Alicia Vikander's character stick out more, be a little bit more insightful or yeah. interesting to watch. It could be a sexier movie. It, or just actually make it about the holiday Granger character and have Alicia Maybe Vikander be like, well, or just have her be like the figure viewed through cracks in the doorway. And then we never really know her, but she's sort of viewed through the eyes of this servant girl. And that lets her be maybe a little bit more eccentric. And I don't know. I don't know what you could do with this movie. There's, there's always this temptation to fix it. And yet like maybe certain books. That's the other thing is we maybe need to divorce ourselves from this notion that like, popular books will make for popular movies because I think the audience that reads books and the audience that goes to movies are not the same. No, especially this kind of book. These, this kind of book too had its own hot moment that was of a particular time. And then people were going for a certain kind of romance again, back to other Boleyn girls, Mm -hmm. an example of that. I don't know. Fixing Mm -hmm. the movie. I definitely think, making Holiday Granger's character the main character and the main focus would fix a lot of problems with this movie because I think the story wants to be primarily her story. And she's the more right. tragic figure. It, yeah. There's, you, it's there's tough interesting to... double crosses there that happen. Yeah. And then Jack O'Connell's character can be the one we follow doing the tulip market stuff. We're like... Once Dane DeHaan jumps into the tulip trade, we're so far down the road into this movie. It's like, it's really tough to get invested, especially because there are these like sort of not complicated, but like not that simple, like tulip futures schemes going on. And it's just like, I don't know. I guess someone's got to run to the Abbey and get a thing. Like Zach Galifianakis has two packages and he's a drunk. And like, Oh, we haven't even mentioned that he's in this movie yet. (sighs) He, he does not fit. He's gotten better, I think, in the years since he filmed this movie at 
being a better fit in movies that are not contemporary comedies. I thought has he? Uh, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> maybe Wrinkle in Time just sort of like circled that square a little bit and like drew like was just like oh yeah he is kind of weird when he's like do i seem like i'm being funny and the kid's like yeah sort of i will say i liked him in wrinkle in time doing what he was doing but i think otherwise galifianakis is trying to andy kaufman us so that every time he shows up in these places (laughs) he shows up like tulip fever it's like what the fuck it yeah it's true can we talk about Dane DeHaan now for a second? Yes, let's please talk about Dane DeHaan. So I realized that he's sort of become this, like, one of the great fuckboys of film Twitter where, like, nobody likes him and everybody just sort of, like, piles on. Um, who were they talking about the other day who I sort of put in that same category? I totally forgot. Um, they all blur together, but, but I will say Dane DeHaan stands out for me because I don't think he's often cast very well like i mean like i want to see him play an actual sexy evil person and maybe this is because i really liked his kill your darlings performance and like i i liked it enough to still be like he's great i want to see something interesting from him but he's great in that he was great in that movie chronicle i just think he's miscast in everything i have never seen chronicle okay you should see chronicle because he's wonderful he plays a high school sort of outcast kid who comes in right well, he comes into superpowers and they sort of drive him toward selfishness. And it's essentially like a supervillain origin story on these like right. very kind of ground level terms. I think it's very good. It's by uh, that guy everybody hates. Um, Trank. The, yes, Trank. Um, um, and then he was also really good in the second season of In Treatment. Second season or first season? I think it was the second season. Because first season was Mia Vasakowska. Right. So... He's in the second season of In Treatment, that show on HBO with Gabriel Byrne where he was the psychiatrist. Where there's like nine million episodes. Yes. Yeah. And so he was on, he was, uh, he played this sort of closeted gay kid. And he was, again, sort of like, he was a little unhinged and a little disturbed, but smart and sort of devious. And that's his wheelhouse for sure. He needs like, to absolutely play Dahmer. Like, that's what I want to see him do. And he keeps being cast as these, like, either, like, well, he had the Spider-Man villain. He... That was bad. I will say, I really think he works in Valerian because he's playing this sort of infuriatingly cocky uh, sort of space cowboy kind of a thing, right? And you are kind of supposed to be driven crazy by how sort of self-confident he is. And yet there's also a kind of weird twinkle in his eye kind yeah. of a thing. And I think, I don't know. I think he and Cara Delevingne I think that's well. definitely closer to what his actual natural gifts are, but it's just seems. He shouldn't have been within a country mile of this role. Like I don't well, understand it's like, it. It's almost like they're treating him with these like kid gloves of, they think that he's 1994 Leonardo DiCaprio or something. So they have to cast him in these. Yes. He has such a physical resemblance to young Leonardo DiCaprio that they keep trying to do that, like replicate that. And I just don't think it's going to happen. Right. Uh, Yeah. So, but I don't know. And then, (laughs) no, I was just going to say, it's back to that thing uh, that we were making fun of earlier that it's like, he's perfectly cast for this, you know, what our vision of a, 
portrait artist is back in the 17th century, but I don't think anyone has that in mind as being sexy, <laughs> you know? So it's right. What did you think of the sex scenes in this movie? I mean, I, it was fine. I kind of liked them. I, I don't know. They're both very skinny. It's, I mean, it was, I, maybe I, my vision through those scenes was the ad campaign for this movie, the last minute ad campaign to get butts and seats with the minimal sex that's in this movie. It, it, I don't know. I, I thought it was fine. I feel like it wasn't enough to call this an erotic thriller or an erotic drama. And maybe if it was actually that, no. it would be oh, interesting. Oh, absolutely not. That was fully fraudulent. Boyd Holbrook, by the way, is the guy I was trying to think oh, of. Oh, yeah. Is the sort of, like, nouveau fuckboy that, like, film bros hate. Um, all right, so we talked about Christoph Waltz. So the interesting thing about this movie, I think maybe the most interesting thing about this movie, is that Steven Spielberg and DreamWorks tried to make this movie in 2004 with John Madden directing it. Again, in love. I think... I think everybody in Hollywood realized that the that the route to success for this movie was to follow the Shakespeare in Love format. Um, the 2004 cast would have been Jude Law as the artist, Kira Knightley as the the woman, and Jim Broadbent in the Christoph Waltz role, which would have given us a Kira Knightley Jim Broadbent sex scene. And I, that is the oh, reason God, this I didn't movie think about should that. not exist. But everything else about that, it's like so Jude better. Law is, especially 2004 Jude Law, is exactly who you want in that role. Well, right? and I think those are the three people you would want in these three roles. And you could even put Ramala Gary as Holiday Granger's role. Oh my fucking right? God. Um, Take that to the bank. But okay. like Jim Broadbent makes so much more sense because Christoph Waltz shows up and we expect him to be evil, right? And we were already like, but wait, he's not yes. actually all that awful. But, I mean, we would have gotten that from Jim Broadbent. Uh, Wait, so who plays Jack O'Connell if Ramal Gary is Holiday Okay, Granger? so if we're talking in 2004. Uh, Where's Matthew Good? What is Matthew Good doing in 2004? Uh, Watchmen? When was Watchmen? Watchmen was 08. 2004 version of this movie, though, is such an interesting footnote that I think because this movie had so many delays in the version they actually filmed yes that it gets completely like missed in a lot of the stories that people talk about this movie but the that version of the movie the john madden version it was like a month and a half out from filming they had spent millions on sets and costumes and it got shut down yeah which is crazy to think that it, it, got it shut still down kept going and it before, was still cursed the way that the days before it was supposed to start filming it got shut down days, they were I like, it was weeks damn i don't even know if it might have been weeks no this thing that i'm looking at now says days before because a change in law in uk law changed the tax loophole so it became suddenly not profitable to make it like they had planted thousands of tulips for this movie and it was like at the starting line and they had to stop how sad is it that we have so many so many great movies to thank or so many great movies that exist thanks to like tax incentives but i feel like because you talk about this movie it was released in 2017 it was a knit like the the version of this movie was initially supposed to be released in 2015 i don't think 
I think it's a non-starter in both of those Oscar years. Yeah. But I wonder if it wouldn't have been a bit of a contender. I keep thinking of the 2004 Oscars and the fact that like Annette Bening was nominated for being Julia that year. And I'm like, would a Keira Knightley performance in this movie be that much of more of a stretch to see, to getting a nomination? I don't. Would Jude Law in a, in a 2004 Tulip Fever directed by John Madden? And granted, let's remember, John Madden hasn't made a good movie since Shakespeare in Love. Right. Um, would that have been any more out of the question than Johnny Depp and Finding Neverland? Also remember that 2004 Jude Law, this was the year of six Jude Law movies and Chris Rock making fun of him <laughs> on the Oscars for it. So it would have been seven. So like... Would this have been a seventh or would he have had to like bump Alfie off of his schedule for this? That's I'm really curious about that because I want to know what Kira Knightley movie she made instead of Tulip Fever. But uh, I mean, yeah, that best actress lineup is really interesting because. Oh, it's one of the most interesting of, of that decade. But would we have gotten an, a more interesting Kira Knightley performance out of this material. Granted, the screenplay could have had some more revisions or something to the version that we got, and I'm sure it did. But would she have given a performance sure. more interesting? I mean, Hillary Swank aside, we will try not to hate on Hillary too much here. Um, I think the I other think four Hillary nominees, and Million Dollar Baby is pretty. Good. I think she's fine, but in that lineup, like, would Kira Knightley have been able to bump off Hillary Swank? Absolutely not. But the other nominees. Wait, so let's go down. It's Annette Benning and Being Julia. It's Catalina Sandino Moreno and Maria Full of Grace, which is a wonderful movie. And a miracle um, nomination. Amelda Staunton. Yes. Amelda Staunton in Vera Drake, the Mike Lee movie. And Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, which is the great, should have won. Like, so much of history is improved if she wins for that, because then she wins for a performance everybody loves. I think so many things are different. I wonder how her career is, if it's, you know, different. Maybe she doesn't care that, you know, the reaction to her Oscar win was so bitchy. I mean, I also wonder if that version, this the John Madden version, is more of a straight down the middle movie design. More to me, I mean, of course, it would have been an Oscar play in some way, but if it still wouldn't have made an impact, it would have been, you know a late March movie that makes some money. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs. I just look at yeah. the the environment. They were still nominating things like, uh, well, like being Julia, like I said, like finding Neverland, like I'm trying to look at some of the other nominations this year. And it just feels like a very long engagement. Phantom of the opera. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. The cinematography nominations in 2004 suck. It's well, but also, it's bizarre. Like, The Passion of the Christ got not House of Flying Daggers, Passion of the Christ, Phantom of the Opera, a very long engagement. They all lost to The Aviator, which got a bajillion nominations. But, like, it's so crazy. The 2004 Oscars, people should talk about that more. Because 2004 is also secretly a banging year for American cinema. Like, this is... And not a great Oscar year. And not a great Oscar year. But, like, there was so much good stuff coming from, like... So many different angles. This was, you know, I Heart Huckabees was this year. The Bourne Supremacy was this year. Um, Door on the Floor, which I think is a great movie that nobody talked. Maybe not a great movie, but like a very good movie with some great things in it. That nobody a lot of about. feelings about that movie. I like that movie. Uh, 
I, I sometimes I just watch that trailer just to sort. The score in that movie is one of my favorites. Anyway, we're kind of off the beaten path here. <laughs> but what I mean to say is, I think Tulip Fever doesn't work at all in 2017. I think a version of Tulip Fever with Jude Law and Keira Knightley in 2004 maybe works. Maybe works enough to get like a nomination or two. I think it maybe does. I'm going to stand by that. I would stand by that as well. What we were saying at the beginning of this episode, the type of mindset that goes into thinking that a movie like Tulip Fever is going to be an Oscar player was more, had more receipts in 2004 than it does today, or even in 2015. I think that's right. It would have originally been released. Yeah. No, I absolutely think that's right. And I think you even see that in some of the nominees. Like you look at, I mean, like, Ray gets a lot of mileage from the Jamie Foxx performance. And like, we do still see that today, although not as much. Like you don't see some, a movie like Jackie making it into the best picture race, even though, you know, Natalie Portman's performance is so strong and that kind of thing. Although actors versus actresses, like it's always, you know, a double standard. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was like million dollar babies just sort of like barnstormed the race that year. And I don't know if it's possible for a movie to open that late and to sort of be that much of an unknown quality that late and still do what it did that year. It's probably also a year of, I mean, you look at those nominations, you talk about what a great year it was for American cinema, but it's probably a great year for American cinema that's not going to get nominated, especially in 2004. And you look at like Catalina Sandina Moreno's nomination that feels like a miracle that it happened. And mm-hmm. even Vera Drake feels like a miracle that it happened. It's because there's not a whole lot of passion going on there. So something completely sideswipes the rest of the competition that people actually have an emotional response to and therefore feel passionately about it like million dollar baby. And it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that's true. So final thoughts on tulip fever. What do we, what's the lesson that we take away from this movie beyond just like, Oh man, I I gotta tell you, that's a lot of pressure because we will probably have literally the world's final thoughts on Tulip Fever. That is true. No one's going to talk about this movie ever again after this. Oh man. So our final thoughts are an epitaph. Um, Yeah. We talk about the autopsy. This one is a funeral. (laughs) We are a full service all in one. We will, we're and a funeral for Tulip Fever. We are, this is a funeral for the Weinstein Company. Boy, is that the case? You look at that's the other thing is I wanted to look really quickly at the Weinstein Company's movies from this was their the last time that this release. Film, they also did an Amityville movie wild. that was also pushed back several years afterwards, after being made and supposed to be released, but it was in something like a dozen theaters. So this was their last real release because of course everything got bumped when the news came out about all of the horrible things that he's been doing for years and years to various. Yes. But like you look at from the time that they filmed this movie, which was mid 2014. So 2014 already you get some, like I think so many, so many of these things feel like infamous mishandles, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby tracks saint vincent big eyes um burnt remember burnt burnt um jane got a gun i don't remember actually i remember adam jones 
I'm sorry, you're right. God, can we make it so that we mention Burnt slash Adam Jones in every podcast that we do? Oh, every I think episode we can do that. I can. We can definitely do that. I'm ready. I am ready to to meet that challenge. I mean, as I said, there's you know Carol is in here. Um, Sing Street is in here. If you look at these last Lion is in here, which I like. There were movies that made a good amount of money, but it was already the writing was on the wall financially, and they were in these dire straits that it's like any of those movies that made money felt like the one that could save Wineco for that year (laughs) that they wouldn't. It's wild that they got a Best Picture nomination as recently as 2016. Yeah. Because it feels like the the company was ready to go under for a few years, and this really like tipped into it. But I like the fact that three of its last four movies were gold, three generations, and Tulip Fever is something. Yeah. I, as a fan, so, anyway. I, like you said, you would rather watch something horrible. As a fan of someone who likes some crazy stuff in a movie and will go with it and acknowledge that it's bad and still love the movie. Even Tulip yeah. Fever is not that. <laughs> and I thought it was wild and bad. Yeah. I want to see a movie where fishmonger Jack O'Connell switches careers and becomes a tulip day trader in the service of Abbess Judy Dench. And every once in a while sort of is sweet to his, you know kitchen wench girlfriend that's the movie i want to see and then once in a blue moon this squirrely looking portrait artist like has at a the top of his scaffolding with his amy brenneman wig. <laughs> with his amy brenneman wig exactly yeah i mean again tulip fever much more interesting for its troubled production than it's you know the film that puts on then that it puts on the screen which almost inevitably so so there we are Final thought? Um, I mean, it's a funeral. Let's go eat. There's always, <laughs> there's always a potluck at the end of a get funeral. Get that lasagna out of the freezer. Throw it in the throw it in the oven. Start heating it. Yeah, it's a good point. But that is, uh, in fact, our episode. So if you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can our listeners find you and your wonderful writing? Uh, you should follow me on Twitter at Chris V file. That's V F E I L. I'm also a writer at the film experience. You can catch me there throughout the week, especially Wednesdays. I write about soundtracks on Wednesdays. Um, and I'm probably musing about some random Beth Granty actress on Twitter. Also follow Chris on Thursday nights for drag race commentary. It is some of the best stuff. On Twitter. It's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I, you're welcome. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. That's spelled J-O-E-R-E-I-D. And every day you can read me at Decider.com, covering film and television and everything that's on streaming. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. That's what we're